All right, so I want to welcome you all to the first SAMOP Specialty Spotlight podcast series. Today we're interviewing uh, Dr. and Colonel Anthony Laporta, who is a um, colonel in the Army, retired, and a general surgeon um, by training. So today we're going to ask him some questions about how he got into his specialty and what his career was like in the military. And uh, hopefully it'll be a benefit to you as you choose and plan your careers. So thanks for coming, Dr. Laporta. We're glad we could have you. It's a pleasure. Um, so first things first, Dr. Laporta, what uh, made you choose to be a general surgeon? Well, I think it's really quite interesting if I go back that number of years. I was enamored with pediatrics, believe it or not, and became uh, enamored enough that it was all pediatric internships that I applied for and was lucky enough to even meet Helen Tausig, who, as you know, was the developer of the Blaylock-Tausig shunt uh, and was incredibly impressed uh, with a woman who was deaf, who could diagnose with her fingers pretty much every baby's problem. By that period of time, uh, of course, I had already been through third year uh, rotations and was well into my fourth year rotations. I'd rotated uh, on general and cardiac surgery at a very unusual time in, in history of medicine and surgery when uh, Dr. Dudley Johnson did multiple bypass, of course, Favolero did the first bypass uh, in the United States, although there was one done before that. Dr. Johnson did the first multiple bypass, and then shortly thereafter, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Lepley um, did the first did the first cardiac by, uh, transplantation in Milwaukee. Milwaukee was a real heartbed of a real hotbed of heart disease, mm -hmm. uh, mostly because the diet, of course, is terrible in Wisconsin with all all you can eat places and more ice cream and more cheese and more beer yeah. than anywhere in the world. So I came back from my interview with Dr. Blaylock at uh, Hopkins, and Dr. DeCoss, who uh, Chief of Surgery, Dr. Lepley, who was the Chief of Heart Surgery, and Dr. Johnson, who was perhaps the most famous heart surgeon in the world at the time, sat me down and said, in fact, you're no pediatrician, boy, what's the matter with you? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you, in quote literature, you have phenomenal hands, you think outside the box, we would like to get you involved in significant transplantation and cancer immunology research and have you become a surgeon. I was kind of completely blown away that I was given that option, especially since at that period of time at, the, at Wisconsin, there was a very special, unique group of people who were the best vascular surgeons in America, John Town and Vic Bernhardt, developed the profundoplasty. Uh, Myron Kaufman and Derek Sampson. Uh, Derek had just come from Cambridge and was 
2012 when Psych was born, and Myron and I did the suppressor research a little later. Direct descendant of, of David Hume at the Virginia Commonwealth, so that's about as in the beginning of good surgery as you could do. In addition, at that time, um, surgery was enormously different than now. Uh, in that, really got to do an enormous amount of research and then actually carry it out on the patients. Um, I don't want to say it was a little gunslinging, but it was a little gunslinging. And the philosophy of surgery at the time was that you could intellectually develop something in the laboratory and bring it almost immediately to um, to clinical world, and I did that as a as a resident. It's hard to imagine that uh, immunology I did and transplant work I did, and the combination of working with BCG and suppressor immunology actually changed some of the early transplantation. So it was a different, totally exciting time. Pretty much the best and the brightest. Every every school was going into general or heart surgery or transplant surgery, which is what I did. And uh, I was on a deferment at the time for the Berry Plan. So finished all of that training, including going to Oxford for a while. Came out as a young army surgeon. What was that? Expected to do two years, very plan, and, and uh, back to academic life. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So with that, I, I guess the Barry plan rolls into that. And how, how did you find yourself in the military at that time? How did I get into it? Is that mm -hmm. what you mean? Yeah. Uh, in that time frame, which the Vietnam time frame, of course. Yeah. The best residencies in America demanded that you have a deferment. And um, if you did not have some form of a deferment, you would go to uh, into the residency and by the end of the second year, you would be drafted and sent to Vietnam to be basically a first assistant or a GMO. And the rotations were a year or two years, depending on the Army at the time destroying a lot of surgical careers. So the best programs required you to have some form of deferment. My deferment was I was in the 128th Air Refueling Group. Yes, that's an Air Force group. And I even got to fly right, right seat in uh, KC-97, which was a big, big eight turbocharged refueler that uh, had a top speed of 197 knots. Fortunately, mm -hmm. shortly after that, we switched to uh, KC. They were called 717s. They were the refuelers that were the 707s, and then eventually to the KC-135, which was mm -hmm. a DC-10. Mm -hmm. At the end of all of that, right as I was coming back from Oxford and everything, um, the Air Force didn't want me. I had to clear the Army. They took me, <laughs> and I expected to be, well, I got first assigned to Fort Polk, 
And uh, fortunately, and a very strange fate, uh, quirk of fate was that Basil Pruitt had been reading my research papers, and Basil was the editor of Journal of Trauma. And all of my stuff having to do with suppressor immunology, Basil simply said to Juan Diabis, who was the consultant, that you can't waste that boy down at Fort Polk. Ended up on here. And um, why did you choose to stay in the military as, as opposed to paying your time back and getting out? First of all, we were living in Munich. You know, <laughs> when you're living in Munich and you have a problem, you have a beer. Yeah. <laughs> and you have another problem, you have another beer. And so there was the distinct advantage to living in Munich. And um, <laughs> uh, I, I was able to bounce back and forth to Oxford some. And, and we just got to tell you, it was just the most magical time frame. It was peace. Mark was strong. Then the Stark episode happened. USS Stark was being shot at by small boats. I got deployed partway through operation in Europe. Sort of settled around very close area to back and around borders in the middle of Turkey. We were there a while. Um, commander got, got uh, fired, believed. Uh, Somehow they decided that I would be deputy commander and then commander for much of the time that I was there. That was quite a shock because I didn't know how to do much of that, but I learned on the spot rather fast. And then um, I was told to stand down. Um, I suspect that President Reagan really meant it when he told those people not to shoot at the start anymore. I suspect we were part of the reason that was the bluff, but 100% for sure. Then um, came back. And it was time uh, to considering where to go. We were considering going to uh, Wisconsin and various other situations when General Ledford asked me to fly to Washington. He was just becoming the Surgeon General. Sat me down at a table with Dr. Norm Rich, who of course is a hero of all heroes and certainly the gentleman of gentlemen. At the table besides Dr. Rich was a fellow named Andrew Ruoff III, who I'd never heard of, and another fellow I certainly had heard of named Gary Goldwater, and he had just run for president, and another fellow named Bob Dole, certainly heard of, and um, they were announcing the Adolf Ruoff III third award I had never this award. Neither had anybody else since it turned out to be the first hit offer of the third award for the best field surgeon in the US military. Well, it turns out Adolf Ruff is who saved Bob Dole. Bob Dole's life at the River Po in Italy. That's why he's, you know, Mr. Dole when he um, was running for president, he had a lame arm that so, um, 
as they awarded me that, he, General Ledford said, now where would you like to go? I said, sir, I think, you know, I have to go back and talk to Mary and you might want to go academic and I do want to stay in Europe another year. And he said, well, that's not an option, son. How about San Francisco? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, San Francisco? He said, yeah, John Hutton's leaving um, San Francisco to go become President Reagan's physician, uh, the chief of surgery there. Would you like to do it? And I said, sir, I think I'm kind of young for that. He said, well, we don't. Francisco, although, um, Really ended up working first uh, year or so. Um, it was I was sent there to learn uh, the first year to see how things were done, and I worked with uh, um, Dr. Homan. Say we are super close friends. An understatement to say that I learned everything I could from him uh, is an understatement, except. He was famous for rather aggressive temper at the time. It was kind of the opposite, but both of us had mellowed out now. In the, in the, and a uh, woman was a, a milestone in having me develop my military style, along with a fellow named Brigadier General Bob Griffin, both of which, of course, were surgeons. And Bob was actually a Silver Star winner in the Vietnam Sir, Bob um, was placed on the dead pile. The officer, the fellow, dragged who actually was next to him in the firefight, got the Medal of Honor. Medal of Honor is to have lived. Um, Bob is saying got the Silver Star, woke up on the dead pile and became a surgeon, so he always told me it to go in half a brain to there you go. So that's how I ended up staying in the army. Is when you get offered San Francisco, yes, um, and told if you waited out a year, the plan is you'll you know so you get the research going and, and chairman. Next thing after that, I ended up in Heidelberg. I mean, it's not a bad set of rotations. No, sir, so that was okay, sir. So, so do you feel that your training and experience in the military are comparable to what you would have had in the civilian sector? Well, I trained as a surgeon in the civilian sector. Um, training in the military besides was enormous ability to train as a leader, enormous ability to keep your practice in medicine on and about medicine, not about money and other things. It had an incredible better purpose than later in life when I became chairman of a major medical center, civilian world, and saw the enormous amount of backstabbing and other um, breakups of what was good surgical practice. As a person who ran military residencies, I'm sure I could egotistically tell you that, that um, residencies, uh, that the military residencies are better than uh, equal to any residency. I don't have to even be 
egotistical when I say it, I mean, because I never had a person flunk boards. Never, never even close. And if they got 35% or lower on an in-service exam, which was the genuine cutoff for, for fear that you might have trouble on the boards, they got a little extra course for the next six months. So there was a lot of studying before they got to that first 35%, that lowest 35%. And I probably averaged uh, in the 80 to 90 percentiles several times that I had guys in the top two or three percent um, in the national boards, I mean, service exams. Never having been even close to um, having one be in trouble. Never, um, it just was a pleasure to, to teach so many really smart guys. And in the days where we could really let them learn, and they were still allowed to do ICU and thoracic and all that kind of stuff when they came out and practiced. So it was sort of magical moments in time. Good. So I guess and, when, and I just want to say that yeah. now, of course, knowing that our surgery residencies have really rocked the in-service scores for various military surgical residencies, I say that, it, that quality remains. So with that quality and your experience as program director and working with residents, so what advice would you have to third and fourth year medical students trying to get into residencies? What can we do now to be competitive and uh, get a spot? So number one is boards, number two is boards, number three is boards. And in addition to that, there are givens. Given is that you will be a gentleman. Given is that you will be an officer. The given is you will not be involved in the various activities. Um, there's a lot to be said for that. And it is one of the few places where you know that personnel you're caring for have a purpose. Generally, generally, they are not destroying self. Generally, they wish to serve and truly give of themselves in a way that doesn't happen a lot of places. So you, you are one of the spheres of respect in this world. When you, um, I think that is you look and you realize that that is what they want. They want the guy that is courteous to their patient. They want the guy or the gal courteous to their colleague. They want the guy or the gal who can listen to the overall plan and then execute using their own individual thought processes and expertise. You guys have seen that. I have done it uh, with you guys when I said, here's what we have as the overall project. And I never interfered with what you guys picked out as 
pieces of that. But as you learned from the very beginning that as long as you pick quality colleagues to be with you, even though you may be their mentor, when you pick levels of this expertise, you are picking them. They can use their brain. There's an old adage about how um, the second to get this right. Now, young folk always dream beyond, always think they can do the impossible, always feel like they go try to do the impossible, and damn it, they usually do. So if you understand that, that your job is to give the guidance, their job is to get give the technical way and intellectual ways to pull that off using all the knowledge you've given them and all the knowledge everybody else has given them. That's what makes a quality young officer and and, and that, strange as it sounds, is what all of the militaries are. You'll see in the private world more often Somebody will pick someone who's really got some personality issues and because he's super smart and can become a lab rat all these that won't happen in the military. They want the person that is well-rounded. Although the intellectual and the science and that all counts as you know also as I push all of you to be involved in at least one major medical research project. So I wanted to take a second as well and talk about officership. You mentioned we kind of just spoke about it a little bit, but some of the students that will be listening to this get six weeks experience of being in the military after their first year of medical school, and then they have nothing really until they go on their sub-internship rotations. So is there any advice that you would have to develop officership type characteristics to prepare themselves for life in the military? I guess when they're kind of isolated and not truly in the military yet. Yeah, that, that's a problem. That's a problem that everybody struggles with. We don't have that problem here because we have uh, enough HPSP um, personnel that we can pull them together and with a couple of very senior, excellent mentors, um, we give the guidance on how to continue to be a military officer and the type of things you should think about, including physical activity and including um, selflessness. Uh, so I don't know, it's really difficult to be isolated in a medical school that does not have lot of um, support for the military, my advice would be that just live your life with that quality, uh, I'm here to help people, with that quality, I'm here to remain fit, that quality, I'm here to think things out, with that quality of understanding that there is something larger than you that you are joining. 
who are joining an organization that allows people to be free in this country. That you need to learn that culture. So reading about that culture, reading uh, General Mattis's uh, chaos book, reading only thing worth living for reading that uh, Dr. Javik just wrote on hell. Reading things where you not only see how tough it's going to be, but how they handle things. Uh, and then realizing that you have to figure out how to anticipate that someday you will have to make decisions that you never dreamt you'd have to make. And, and you may be in tougher spots than you ever thought you would be, but that because you've thought that out and you've read that entire period of time, you will be prepared for that. People up front that we think are prepared for that. Um, and there are probably five to 10% that never should have been picked. And the time they're picked to the time they actually start have not continued to be that quality. Nothing you can do. In the entire period of time that I've been here, I'll tell you who it was. I'm grateful that wasn't mine. It wasn't yours. <laughs> well, I think uh, one more question, I guess, to close, Dr. Laporte, would be you were talking about, um, I guess, those moments, the, the you know, saving the nation's finest, you know, us as military physicians taking care of those who protect and serve this country. Is there a particular case or a time that sticks out in your mind where you uh, operated on a wounded warrior or something or someone that was there on the front lines that, really inspired you and made you proud to be an army surgeon? Wow. Wow. Uh, probably so many. Um, there are so many, it's hard to add more than a few tears. And I've had more than a few really cool good things happen. I mean, it's, it's just, there's been enough that you can't single one out. Uh, there certainly have been more than a few that I did have an extra beer with six months later, or a um, glass of scotch, as most know that I am uh, happy to sit down with a really good scotch now and then. and. Um, your buddies and say, wow, remember when we did that? I mean, it's, there, there are plenty. There are plenty. I don't know what to say about them. That's all I right. can tell you everyone that I lost. I can tell you them by name. Mm. I can tell you them by injury. Fortunately, there were none. Well, I uh, um, think that's probably all the time we have. So thank you, Dr. Laporta, for taking time to 
to do this, and um, we'll look forward to having more specialists on this series. So thanks for listening.